Hello everyone, Ryan here. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping items before we get started. As usual, we like to mention that our podcast is supported by the American Prospect magazine, where I work. And so if you uh, support the podcast at the $10 tier on Patreon, you can get a free digital subscription and a heavily discounted print subscription if you want it. But with that out of the way, let's not waste any more time and get into our interview with Sparky Abraham right now. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Brian Cooper. We have today uh, Mr. Sparky Abraham. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, you got it. I, I think I'm going to let you introduce yourself, actually. I have some notes scribbled down here, but just so I don't mess anything up. Like, what? Wh- who are you and what are you up to these days? <laughs> Explain yourself, sir. <laughs> just, just really, just really cut to the core on that one. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm Sparky. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a consumer rights attorney in California. Uh I've been working for legal aid for a while and now I've got my own, my own solo practice. Um, and you know, I've just like been around big fan of the show of left anchor, been listening for a long time and, uh, I've written on some stuff. Um, and you know, I, we were talking about before, like, um, talked uh, with you, Ryan, before about your work on the trucks (laughs) for current affairs with which I was involved previously. Um. Yeah. Happy to be here. And you have you, a you podcast. You want to plug the new pod? I've 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 been enjoying the new pod. You should plug hmm. the pod. Yeah. 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 That's true. So, um, I, I'm one of one of actually a four person team. Although so far most of the content is just two of us. Uh, behind the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Um, which is a uh rehoming and expansion of the Is MMT Real series that previously lived on the Current Affairs Podcast. So if you um liked that series or it sounds interesting to you uh it now lives on the rabbit hole podcast and and you can find us at uh, patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast it's all free it's not paywalled but like just go there for all the links and who's there with you because we have some friends of the pod uh that uh have, have oh yeah 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 so the uh pete davis is is the main co-host on the um mmt series but also um behind the scenes and working on a couple of upcoming series that I think are going to be interesting and, and probably get some people pissed off are, um, Oren Nimney and Vanessa AB. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if, if, so, j- j- <laughs> if folks want to hear some controversial opinions upcoming Absolutely. on uh, all- things like education or voting in multi-series uh, format, the go all check it out. All great people. And uh, in fact, we have connections to all of them. Um, both Vanessa and Pete have been on the podcast. And Oren has been part of the uh, Fantasy Football Podcast League action that, that we've had, uh, you know, between Left Anchor and some other podcasts. So, uh, so Sparky, you're, you're part oh. of a, a fine group over there and, and we're, we're glad to have you. So thank Thanks for joining us. Look, man, it's it's a it's a small world, the podcasting world, I guess. Left podcasting. It's the it's the self-sustaining Patreon economy <laughs> is what we've got going in here. So yeah. Um so we wanted to have you on to talk about like the American legal system. You had you had you had some ideas on this, but I thought a good way to sort of uh prime the pump, as it were. Uh, would be to just talk about Supreme Court shit that's happened in the last uh, week or so. Uh, you you have, I think, uh, the the kind of reactionary nature of the Supreme Court 
that's been revealed uh, to to a really glaring extent over the last little bit. Um, a bo- a Roe versus Wade is is dead. That that is that is gone. Uh, uh, like abortion, I, I I believe it's correct to say I, I might this might be premature, but there are no more functioning ab- abortion pr- providers in Texas, um, and many other states are following the same lead. Republican government uh, means in your state that you will that abortion will be illegal, and in fact, it may you may uh, be empowered empowered because the way they're doing this with a bounty system, basically that you could sue people who go for abortions in other states. So you're sort of trying to infringe on the sovereignty of you know New York or whatever. Uh, and uh, mo- most inflammatorily recently, uh, Jenny Thomas, uh, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was uh, turns out to have been sending text messages to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, encouraging him to overturn the 2020 election. Um, she attended the January 6th rally. She has a long connection to one of the principal January 6th organizers, uh, Ali Alexander, um, and has uh, been for many years a totally deranged right-wing lunatic. Uh, <laughs> everyone's known this for a long time. And if you read some of the text messages, it sounds like your conservative, like great aunt yelling at you about vaccines, you know, with like 14 exclamation points and stuff. I mean, like literal QAnon shit talking about how she hopes that all the Biden people are going to be taken to Guantanamo Bay and put to the sword. Um, And we've always known that Clarence Thomas, the current Supreme Court justice, is basically a political unit with his wife. Uh, they are both right wing freaks, and they they uh, have have been. Um, Matt Sitman, friend of the pod, was talking about as a young conservative um, at the Heritage Institute when he was an intern. Uh, Ginny brought Clarence in to just talk to the interns. You know that this this was has always been. Uh, you know their 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 perception that they share in their political project, and the idea that Ginny did not talk about this with Clarence is totally ridiculous. Um, then we have uh the Katanji Brown Jackson, right? That's her name. The uh hearings that are going on. Um, you know she's been nominated by Biden. Now Supreme Court hearings are total formality. Just do you have the votes? Apparently, Democrats do have the votes because Joe Manchin said he's, he's going to vote for her. He's been reliable on court stuff, if not on anything else. Uh, but the hearings have been, uh, in a sort of a consonance with the Thomas News, a bunch of QAnon libels, basically uh, saying that she is uh, she's soft on child sex predators, um, you know, because she was involved in, like, as a judge, she had sentenced people and she had occasionally on some, you know, child pornography cases aired towards this, like she had chosen as is legal, like towards the, the lower end of the sentencing guidelines. And that a uh, bunch of lying sacks of shit like Josh Hawley, uh, also a friend of the pod, which proved he's a lying sack <laughs> of shit on the podcast, by the way, this reported on Left Anchor. We'll we'll link to that episode in the description because we actually caught him dead to rights and uh, that we are the first people to do it. Um, uh, you know, d- just saying child predator and K- Katanji Brown Jackson in the same sentence to get the media to report on it, which exists. They did, of course. 
And so this is just like, sort of where we're at. Don't forget, Ryan, Kant invented critical race theory. <laughs> That's right. Which is a really, you know, great bit of scholarship that was unearthed in the, in the hearing. So, uh, and the, oh, to, to tie the whole thing together, she was the judge at the guy. If you may remember, there was a, the, a deranged right wing uh, conservative dude who busted into Comet Ping Pong in D.C., the, the original mm-hmm. Pizzagate. Uh, conspiracy theory said there was a basement in the in the in Comet Ping Pong where they were collecting the adrenochrome of the children. Blah blah blah. blah. Uh, there there is no basement. So th- this guy, you know, believed all the fucking internet nonsense, and he went to that place and with a gun, and and he tried to like break into the, you know, the basement. The building doesn't have a basement. I've actually been to this place. It's a totally. <laughs> Just a normal pizza joint with just some some games and stuff, you know, like like a pinball machine and whatnot. And he's like, where do I get to the basement? And they're like, what are you talking about, man? Katanji Brown Jackson was the presiding judge at that trial and sentenced him in a way. She, she had a final statement that was fairly sympathetic to the guy saying, like, I understand that you thought you were doing something nice. You, that you were uh, trying to like uncover a great wrong, but you, you know, did like he busted in with a gun and was like shooting at the wall. He did. He didn't hurt anyone, I don't think. And he eventually he apologized being like, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that I was so misled. Uh, but, you know, it was like he still put the, you know, t- terrified everyone. <laughs> like you can't just kick the door in because you read something on Facebook. Anyways, that's a, just a crazy coincidence. And so she, it seems like, is going on the Supreme Court to serve as another vote uh, for a totally ineffectual liberal uh, minority of three votes that can't do anything. Um, and that's where we are, where we're at. Um, my first question for you, uh, Sparky, you, you you sent us an article by this fellow Carter, Stephen Carter, is that his name? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, you you. It, it, it's all about, you know, are, are courts powerful and are courts effective? And, you know, it sort of sort of answers that in the negative. And I wonder, you know, if you could just sort of summarize the argument there when the, when we're talking about like the court system, you know, the, the, the idea that the court is less powerful than people might presume, because it talks a lot about Brown versus Board of Education, you know, a couple of other cases uh, what it like state that maybe in a, in a, in a form and we can maybe look into it real quick before we get into some of your, your other points. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, I mean, there's, there, that's not, not the only article making this point and that there are a lot of kind of articles in, in dialogue with Stephen Carter and, 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 you know, but I think the main point that I kind of draw from the article and from this argument that really resonates with me is I remember before I went to law school, having this sort of background music idea of what the Supreme Court is, what it's there for, what it does, what lawyers do as, you know, it's like, it's the protector of rights, right? It's there to protect against the tyranny of the majority and we can go to the Supreme Court to get good things done, right? You want schools desegregated, you go to the Supreme Court. You want uh, interracial marriage, you want gay marriage, you go to the Supreme Court. Like, 
you know, this is, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost like the bastion of, of justice in the society, right? Like it is the thing that is going to move us forward toward a more just society. And I think that the thing that the article gets at and that I really felt during law school was that, you know, the, <laughs> to the extent that that has ever been true, it might have been true for a relatively short period of time in the middle of the 20th century, which was essentially an anomaly in the history of the Supreme Court, let alone courts more broadly. And it's just kind of wild. I mean, I remember having this moment when I was like, you know, a first year law student doing my summer internship. And everybody was like really into like watching the Supreme Court docket. And one of the big cases that came down was, I forget the name of the case, but it was the case that held that states could not do mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles. And they, you know, they said, no, you can't do that. You can't do mandatory life sentence with no possibility of getting out for children. Um, I was like, yes, we won. Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> what we a win. Did we did it. <laughs> and you just have this moment where it's like, what the, f what the <laughs> fuck are we doing? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like, like my, my, you know, my entire, like my entire, like uh, the earliest I can remember was the Rehnquist court. Right. And like William Rehnquist was, was really like a, quite a right wing. Girl. A racist. Like, it's, the, oh yeah. A, extreme racist. Like. You know, it, the the idea that the Supreme Court is this bastion of righteous justice or, you know, the the a beacon of progress in society, I think when you start talking to lawyers and law students, you actually find that fewer of us think that than maybe the general population. Um, but I certainly remember being the general population and just, you know, having this as an uncritically accepted belief. Um, and so Stephen Carter's main point in the article is basically like things like Brown v. Board of Education, things that happened in this little 20 year period have colored our idea of the court and have actually driven a lot of people to become lawyers and then to engage in litigation strategy that has as its uncritic, un, unexamined assumption the fact that the court is this way when in fact it's, it's not. And so we just put a lot of resources and a lot of faith into this idea of litigating social issues as if that's the way we're going to solve problems. And uh, actually, in reality, the court most of the time is a terrible tool for doing right. that. Right. I want to say a few things just real quick in response because that's – I absolutely agree with all that. Um, but I want to be careful, right? Because – uh, and to reaffirm those points, it's absolutely true that the court has mostly been reactionary. And even when it did the right thing, it did so in a way after the social movements and, and all kinds of mass politics basically forced it to. And it was a reflection, not a cause of so much good social change, uh, too, right? And then three, Absolutely, it is not. It is a tool politically for advancing things, and uh, especially with gay marriage, you, you know, people might think it's especially good, right, for 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 achieving social ends. Uh, although I think that that's a, a good example for the kind of change that doesn't threaten capital is especially the kind that might work that way. Um, but but I do want to say that as a site of struggle, we should not forget even the Supreme Court or the federal courts, because uh, although it's not true that leftist goals 
can be achieved this way. Reactionary goals absolutely can, uh, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's, you know, shooting down OSHA's attempts to put in vaccine mandates, whether, you know, you could just think of all kinds of reactionary things that the, the federal courts even and the Supreme Court, let alone uh, state and local courts, absolutely, uh, you know, do that are terrible, terrible things. And and so they, they sh- we should not forget this as a site of struggle, at least, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. I mean, one interesting thing and Stephen Carter makes this point, others made it as well, is in in the sense that courts are dispute resolution bodies, you know, even though, of course, with the Supreme Court, we're always kind of thinking in the forward-looking sense, and really there are, they can only formally be backward-looking in terms of the things that they're deciding, right? So part, not all, part of the reason why I think the right has been so successful at the Supreme Court is not just the fact that they have judges, but also the fact that they have spent so much time and effort and been so fruitful in politics at the local and state level and in getting folks on state courts and getting, you know, packing the lower federal bench, right? Like they've they've built up all of the stuff that happens before cases get to the Supreme Court in such a way that really stacks the deck. And I think that's, you know, I Absolutely, 100% agree with you, right? The Supreme Court is and needs to be a site of struggle. It is an important tool in the toolbox, but I do think that a lot of a lot of people on the left, and particularly lawyers, get blinders totally. on, and totally. you really forget about everything else that's happening. Absolutely. Now, before we transition to to the more important parts of the courts that student that students look at me, I'm in professor mode. That uh, <laughs> listeners might not be as aware of. Uh, I, I do just like because you know the left needs to celebrate the wins too. Like th- this is the least bad, and I would dare say even. Uh, the best possible nominee that Biden could have picked. And I, I want leftists to appreciate how much worse it could have been and how actually, in fact, good this is. Uh, would you mind yeah. just speaking a little bit to that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I'll speak to that point, but then I'm also I'll also just complicate yeah, sure, it a, yeah. a little Let's bit. Right. Um, so, yes, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, I, I, you know, I don't I don't know her. I'm not familiar with her personally, although I, I she is related to Paul Ryan. Who, is that why you're worried? Through marriage, Wait, through marriage, what? through marriage. She, she's literally true? related through marriage to Paul Ryan, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry um, to throw you off there. Her husband is very cute. I don't, Wait, I've been very enjoying him being there, like, handing her, like, coffee and, and like, you know, just sort of fussing over her. That, that, that's, that's very, very, like, top quality husband material. I like that a lot. But, you know, everybody's got a black sheep. So I suppose it's his cousin or something like that. You know, the Paul, Paul Ryan no, but, dragging but, the Ryan name down, by the way. He really needs to. But no, co- we're off track. Not complicated, though, Sparky. I just saw it when I looked. I well, just saw okay. she, she doesn't look to be like she's against labor, you know, and it, and it looks like she, so public defender, yeah. you know. So, you know. yeah. So. I agree. And and I was going to say, like, you know, I, I am very close with some folks who are close with her, whose opinions I, I trust um, to a great degree. And they are all huge fans of her. Like, I think this is really an extremely positive pick. I have no doubt that she is going to be uh, eons better, <laughs> like, like uh, exponentially better than Stephen yeah. Breyer. <laughs> right. Which like we could talk, we could talk about that guy. Um, but um, I, I think th- and and, you know. The Supreme Federal Courts in general, Supreme Court in particular, is kind of uh, grounds primarily for prosecutors, 
um, major corporate law firm lawyers and uh, law professors. And so, yes, she is. I, I think she's maybe the only Supreme Court will be the only Supreme Court justice ever to have been a, a public yeah. defender. Um, as opposed to just an attorney. As important attorney. as being a black um, woman, I would say, which is not to say, not to diminish that point. Those, but those two things, that's very important. I mean, you know, like that, yes. that experience matters. Oh, yeah. And it, you know, it's interesting again, just to like think back to the beginning of law school, you do this little exercise where they, um, they just kind of like randomly assign, you know, they just like, we had our small class and they randomly assign everybody to two different, to the different sides of like one legal issue. And you just see immediately how everybody becomes instantly convinced that their side is the only correct and reasonable <laughs> side. <laughs> just, just as a little microcosm of what happens, you know, with, with everybody, yeah. but it's particularly prosecutors and public defenders, right? Um, but I think the complication here that I just, oh, and she worked on the sentencing commission for a long time. The sentencing commission does a lot of important work and is actually like often very good in terms of a realistic view of what the criminal justice system looks like, although there are obviously battles there. Um, I think the little bit of complication is it's just kind of funny that before, you know, uh, I don't remember when, but there are folks like the People's Parity Project who have been doing a lot of great work around Supreme Court uh, picks and putting out lists of of attorneys for judge picks generally for federal judicial nominations. Um, one of the lines that folks have been pushing has been not only like cut back on prosecutors, but also cut back on corporate lawyers and do more you know, civil rights lawyers do more, public defenders do more legal aid. Um, just note, you know, <laughs> Judge Katanji Brown Jackson uh, was a public defender for two years. She's also a corporate lawyer for, I think, maybe like yep. 10 years. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think like, again, as you said, she is, uh, as far as I can tell, fantastic. So uh, well, the sense of big law, maybe not completely off of her, right? You know. We st- Unless we she was got, doing some, you know, ways to go. double agent stuff in, in the corporate, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, there's all kinds of dynamics at work there. Like, I, you know, I, I do think we should shame big law lawyers, but not quite as simplistically as, as some people do. But, you know, just to say, like, um, it's a lot of focus being put on the two years without a lot of with a, without sure, a lot of focus sure. on the fair, rest. Fair enough. Yeah. So time will tell, right? But right now she, she's she's going to compete with Sotomayor. We'll see if if she can compete, right? Yeah. For, for being the the, the vanguard I, of the left on the court. We'll see. I I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Which is promising, promising. and so helpful. There's a note of hope. And, there's and a note of still, hope. Now. And it'll still be now six that three. we have a little bit of hope. It's time <laughs> to really upset people with something they don't know about, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you sent us some some stuff about Ventura County in California, uh, the 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 court records there with regards to like what what the function basically, uh, if I if 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 I could say that, what the function of the the county court in Ventura County is, and so can you can you get into that with us uh, about you know yeah. the, the 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 stuff you've been seeing. Yeah, yeah. So, and and to be clear, you know, I I've been doing some work trying to get data in Ventura County, California, because this is where I live, and also because there are features of how the court reports case data that make it far from easy, but possible to do some analysis of what's going on in state court here. Um, but just the set, just to kind of set the stage here, right? Like state courts do a 
tremendous amount of work and handle an absolutely tremendous amount of cases, particularly compared to the amount of attention they get compared to federal courts. I don't have the docket stats in front of me, but like state court is where is where most stuff happens, honestly. Just like, in terms of volume, um, you know, it's like yeah, mass numbers. Just that, in terms of this volume. is true of yeah. people being incarcerated. This is true of, of right, exactly. civil actions, all the things. Most people in in prison exactly, are in yeah. state prison or in county or in jails. State prison. Uh, the the federal prison system is you know like two hundred thousand people out of like like a couple of million or something like that. Right? And don't don't Millions. get us started yeah. about the crazy jurisdictional weirdness of sheriffs. Let's not even talk. I mean, let's talk about it. Oh my god, <laughs> Sh- sheriffs will yeah, come up in right. this too. So you know, I, I I've I'm a consumer debt lawyer, right? This is what I've been doing for my career, which has been about seven years now. Um, and I, one of the things I I have been watching and, and has gotten some coverage, though I, I I don't think quite enough has been the um the the dynamic, the phenomenon of debt collection litigation. Look, there's there's been some there's been some great reporting on this, uh, you know, over the past six or six or seven years. Paul Keel at ProPublica and a lot of other folks at ProPublica, in addition to David Dan, has done a lot of great work around the debt collection industry. But this remains this kind of huge, huge rash of actual court action, litigation. Like if you think about litigation or court cases or lawsuits, people generally, I don't think, think of debt collectors suing people who owe relatively small amounts of money. But if you actually go in and look at court data, that's most of of what it is, right? So I, I... with some help of some friends, I, I kind of did a scrape of the um, court data in Ventura County and found essentially that uh, approximately half of all of the civil cases filed here, half of all the civil cases, like includes probate, includes family, includes evictions, like half of everything that happens in in our court here that is not a criminal case is a small dollar debt collection case. It's not even like this doesn't even include the debt collection cases on like bigger car loans and stuff. Is twenty five thousand dollars or less is, is half of what that the court is handling. That's crazy. Um, I mean, just, we should pause there for a moment so people kind of grok yeah. that what that what that means. Can can you just for a moment talk about all the things that fall under civil law, just so people have a sense for all the kinds of things that could be filed and heard by the court? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, think of anything, right? Think of anything that you think that the law touches. I mean, you know, every contract, like, uh, right? Uh, like, Contracts, breach of contract, torts, malpractice. Um, uh, you've got, you know, uh, all the family stuff, right? That includes divorces, that includes child custody, all of the probate stuff. So every time somebody dies and the estate is in dispute, or even often when it's not in dispute, it still has to go to probate. Um, all the real estate disputes, all the business disputes, all the, you know, patent litigation generally goes to federal courts. So maybe that doesn't count, but like, you know, all of this stuff, class actions, like, uh, anything, you know, uh, wrongful death, employment, as I said, eviction, like anything that you can kind of think of as a lawsuit is, is less than all of that combined is less than just the small dollar debt collection cases. Um, it's, it's actually, it's like quite astounding to think, you know, and particularly in the context of the tort reform movement that has been going on for the last couple decades that's still going strong where there's this idea it's like oh my god you know all of these 
plaintiff's attorneys are out there and they're filing all these frivolous lawsuits and they're taking all this money. And then you look at the actual court data and it's like, holy shit, you know who's filing frivolous lawsuits? American Express. Fucking Bank of America is filing, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand lawsuits all across the country every year. Hurts. And uh, I don't know if you heard about this. There was a USA Today investigation about how um, the Hertz uh, auto rental company had filed. I mean, can you can you explain that one to us? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, so the one that I remember seeing was about them um, filing police reports. Um, I don't know if I saw one about, were they filing lawsuits yeah, too? Yeah, uh, people got felony convictions for stealing cars that they had rightfully right, rented right. and had Which, evidence. I don't know how the goddamn court system worked. There was some guy who was like, uh, I forget what state it was in, but he was going to run for the state uh, legislature. And then he was sued by Hertz for stealing a car that he had rented and had documentation and a receipt and somehow still got convicted. I mean, this maybe speaks to the sort of things you're talking about with the legal system being just like a fucking farce at the, at the end of the day. Uh, and you know, there's like thousands and thousands of people. And it's, 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 it's like, who's getting it? It's people with low social capital, people who can't, you know, like if you have a lot of Twitter followers or you're rich or you're, you've, you know, somebody's, you know, wealthy investor and whatever, like that stuff, it just, oh, it goes away. Or you can call up a reporter at the New York Times. But if you're just some random schlub, they just sort of semi like, arbitrarily sue people uh, fi- uh, report these vehicles as stolen almost f- for no right. reason and and like i mean it, it's not for no reason though right like this is i guess this is just my guess i didn't see this in the reporting but like pretty sure what's happening is uh you know they uh lose a car or think they've lost a car in their inventory check or whatever and they want to make an insurance claim on it and their insurance requires them to report it stolen if if they've lost it. And so they just report it stolen by whoever the I last person on right, record yeah. rented it is. Right. Yeah, that's insane. So it's actually just to get the insurance money. Well, and, and that's what they're doing. So in the civil suits, they're also just trying to get a couple hundred bucks at a time from poor people. And, and because, you, you know, interestingly, remember the scale, everyone, of how many suits we're talking about here. And this is in, so Ventura County was, it, if I recall, the 18th largest city in California out of what, 54 county? Sorry, county out of 54, something like that? Yeah, thir- 13th, 13th largest, out, I think, out of, out of 58 15 counties. counties. I was close. Um, Medium big. And, and, Medium yeah, big. and you, what, 850,000 people, something like that. Uh, and you, 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 you know, it said that maybe 1.5% of uh, the defendants had counsel, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are are, and this is true for debt collection cases. You know, everywhere across the country, in every county in California, in every state in the country, there is no. I mean, really, there's like the extent to which there's a right to an attorney in criminal cases is often overstated. <laughs> and I think that people don't actually quite understand that you have to you have to be income qualified, and then often you have to pay for the attorney anyway. But um, you know, in civil cases, in debt collection cases, there's really, really no right to an attorney. And, wait, 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 wait. Can, can um, you explain that? I feel like people maybe don't understand that. Yeah. that there's a, there's, I, there's a general sense. I feel like the expectation is, if you're charged with a crime, then you get a public defender. The public well, defender the is, let, let, probably has a hundred 
twenty thousand cases. So first you know. of all, let, let's just <laughs> yeah. let's just yeah. make sure people understand that that crime only applies yeah. to criminal law, which is people watch Law and Order and like you know that yeah. whole thing. So so let's make that 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 basic category yeah. difference uh, clear for people. But maybe even say a few more things about how that's not also completely true. Yeah. So I, I think what Ryan's saying, which which is right. And I think probably was my, was my impression for a, for a very long time until like well into my being a lawyer when I, until I actually thought about it, right? Is that yes, anybody charged with a crime can go get a, can go get a public defender. Um, and that is, as I understand is not true. Public defenders offices have income and wealth qualifications and, and guidelines. It's a means tested service. And so that's, I mean, even in the Miranda rights that you hear on law and order, right? It's like, if you cannot afford an attorney, one Asterisk. will be provided to you. Well, who decides if you can <laughs> right, afford an right, attorney right. or not? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and then of course there is also, I think this kind of depends on, on the state and, and locality, but um, oftentimes people end up getting a bill for their public defender that they then Oh, after the fact, it's not it's not exactly a free service. And then it's a debt collection case later on. (laughs) Could very well could. And government debt, I got to tell you, is like the fucking worst. Um, But that's for that's for criminal cases, right? In criminal cases, if you cannot afford an attorney, you can use the public defender's office. and, And that's supposed to be universally available for people who qualify, again, based on based on income and assets. In civil cases, if somebody comes and sues you, if Midland Funding, which is one of the largest debt buyers in the country, sues you and says, you know, Ryan, like you owed, I don't know, whoever, Citibank, you know, $12,000 or you owe this private student loan $4,000 and you haven't paid and we're suing you now, you know, regardless of whether there's any merit to that or not, you know, it could it could be. They've just got the wrong person. It could be identity theft. It could be, oh, you did, but you paid it back. Any, any number of things, right? But you're not entitled, like, there's no, there's no attorney that you can just go and get as a right, no matter what your income is, like you potentially could in a criminal. Right. That's the, and so that's the thing I wanted to drill down on, you know, like the, the, this different aspect of the law. You're talking about criminal, criminal law with like robbery, assault, murder, whatever. That's a thing, you know, so we have the public defender thing, but on the civil side of it, in situations where the implications may be every bit as dire as they are on the criminal side, if you are served papers from from one of these corporations, you're fu- you, if you don't have money to buy uh, a uh, to, to pay for an attorney, you're fucked. You can't do anything. There there's there's nothing, right. there's no there's no system there to help you. 1.5%. That is truly, I mean, that is well targeted, I guess, I suppose. I mean, you know. it, it reminds me, it reminds me of the the percentages. I think this might have more to do with, with federal cases about how many plea bargains yeah. uh, versus jury trials, right? Yep. It's again, like. Oh, that's, that's state court yeah, too. Yeah, so yeah. it's in the high 90s, like 97% plea bargain, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, th- and that's true. And that's true in civil cases, too. And that, you know, the vast majority settle like fewer than 10% go to trial. I mean, when you look at debt collection cases, and this is data that it, that folks are working on getting, but it's very, very difficult to get on any kind of large basis. The sort of uh, the equivalent, but more shocking number is default judgments. And, and just so folks understand, right? Like, if somebody sues you, 
and you engage with the process. If you get an attorney or you show up to court and represent yourself, then you kind of go through the normal lawsuit process, which could end with a settlement or in theory could go to trial and then there will be a judgment that's issued. A default judgment is what happens if you don't engage yeah. with the process. If somebody sues you and you just never show up or say anything, the judge basically, and you can kind of see why, like the judge essentially feels like they have no choice but to just say, okay, well, the other side wins. You know, you're not there to say anything against it. So whatever they say happened, happened. And, and then they have a judgment against you. And, and Alexi, like you were, like you were getting at, right? Like the consequences of someone having a judgment against you, whether it's a default judgment or not, can be like really quite severe. I mean, they can go and they can garnish your wages. They can actually take that judgment to your employer and your employer has to send them up to 25% of your wages every month until the judgment's paid off. In California, judgments last 10 years and they can be renewed and uh, they have interest on them of 10%. So even 10%. if you did not have an interest rate, even if you didn't have interest or even if you had a low interest rate on the debt that you're being sued on, as soon as it becomes a judgment, they got 10%. Or even if it was made up, even um, if it never existed. Not it never existed, not yours, yeah. doesn't matter. 10%. And so, you know, this is this is kind of like, again, I don't, I don't have numbers on this in Ventura County. Folks are working on getting it statewide, but... I I think that that when these numbers start to come out, we're going to see, I'm sure the majority, probably the vast majority of the debt collection lawsuits that are filed result in default judgments, not just judgments against people, but default judgments, being that people didn't show up. One kind of interesting example of this, which which I can send you guys the materials for if you want to throw it in the show notes, is um, one of my former colleagues who now works at Bay Area Legal Aid just last week, I think, filed a lawsuit against a debt collector that's sort of closely associated with a process server. And so again, to think about the way this works, right? If somebody files a lawsuit against you, in order for you to even know that that has happened, they have to serve you with the papers for the lawsuit. They have to actually deliver them to you somehow. And there are various rules about how that can happen. And you know, there's a term for the bullshit version of that that's very common, which is sewer service. This is like a known thing, right? Enough to have a name. Um, but this one, this one debt collector and associated process server that Bay Area Legal Aid just uh, filed a lawsuit against, they um, they have their process server. They had one process server who was doing things like claiming that he had served two people forty nine miles apart within five minutes of each other, or that he traveled thirty miles in three minutes, uh, or appeared in two locations thirty miles apart at the same time. In all of the proofs of service that they filed in San Francisco, the person served was either Jane Doe or John Doe, was Hispanic, and was either in their late 30s or, or, or early 40s. And that was the only description given of them. <laughs> and so it's just like, it, it, you know, this is this is actually the business model. This is kind of the only way that it even makes sense to be filing, if you're one of these companies, tens of thousands of lawsuits against people. If 10,000 people knew that you were suing them and were able to get an attorney and engage with the process, there's just no way that it would be worth the money for you to go through with that. It depends on the fact that people will not know that they're being sued or will not know what to do, not be able to find an attorney, not be able to respond. The business model relies on the default judgments. And again, 
we're talking about. This is the business model for most of Isn't the that cases crazy? that are it's filed so in court. Yeah. Which is the same power asymmetry as, I mean, it's not for no reason that the people that plea bargain are so often socioeconomically disadvantaged and people of color. And like, if they could, didn't feel like they couldn't scare the shit out of people with no power and, and get them to accept a certain number of years or whatever, if, if they actually all went to court, the whole system would fall apart, right? You know? Yeah. And you see this too, right? I mean, you see like, what often happens with these cases, I mean, you know, I like this is sort of like some of the advice that we often give give clients. And, you know, obviously it's not it's not actually legal advice, like it doesn't apply across the board. It depends on individual circumstances, all that. But a lot of times if you just show up and file an answer, even if you don't have an attorney, they'll just dismiss it's not, it. Not worth like, their oh, time. Shit, yeah. We, we yeah. Don't have, yeah. It's not worth our time. We don't actually have the documents we need to prove this up. So no, no, no. We we were only interested if you weren't. Unless we get all these easy marks who we, who we can't find and we'll just, you know. It reminds right. me of the, uh, the, the <clears throat> foreclosure cases after the Great Recession, uh, you know, post 2008. You had several years of, of, uh, of, of cases of people who, you know, they, they may or may not have like owed money on on a mortgage um but they they couldn't pay it for whatever reason you know because of the of the economic crisis and so you know the bank went to foreclose on them but because of the way that the uh the 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 mortgage debt had been sliced and diced and repackaged and sold to umpteen different people they didn't have the paperwork That's and right. so they yeah. just fucking yep. fabricated it and the whole system depended yep. on most people, you know, uh, just just being in despair and not showing up, you know. And so if if you were if you were stubborn or smart enough to show up and be like, hey, this date is complete bullshit. You made this up uh, that you don't have the right paperwork to prove that you actually own the the house that were, you know, the like the mortgage note. Uh then they would be like, oh, okay, oh, oh, you f yeah. forget about that. Yeah, yeah. don't because it was just, it. <laughs> you know they would have these. The, they call him Matt Taibbi before he became a, a piece of shit. Uh, had a great article uh, in Rolling Stone in like 2011, 2010, um, of going to the rocket docket in uh, Florida, where they would just do foreclosure cases with like retired judges, and they would just sort of leaf through the case from the and assuming that people didn't come up and just ka chunk ka chunk ka chunk you know just just stamping the stuff out and i think uh it it, it maybe you know the the details are disturbing but it, it suggests possibly you know the the uh what the legal system is for uh how it functions in society and uh, with rare exceptions, depending on the socioeconomic status of the people involved, it is a system of domination. It's a system of extracting money out of the working class and the and the and the poor. Um, and it basically, you know, unless you have access to unusual amounts of resources, it doesn't work to serve any of its advertised functions. Um, and you know, so like. Do you have, I don't know, like like a, 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 a sort of thoughts about what should be done? You know, like is the is is the functioning of this? I guess you could sort of take it one of two ways. You could say like, well, it's not set up correctly, 
And, uh, you know, so we need to we need to, like, take steps so that people have more access to public defenders and so on or 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 that, like, the courts should not be involved with most of what they're doing with this, you know, just debt collection stuff. And it's just like a bunch of rapacious capitalists who've colonized the instruments of violence, you know, where you talk, I mean, you talk about in that article, uh, not your article rather, but like how, you know, this is sheriff's departments. This is men with guns coming up to take your shit. You know, it's, it's not subtle and it's, it's not, you know, through some kind of like paper stuff. It's, it's like, uh, give me what you have being robbed, uh, be, you know, banditry and forfeiture. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's the same thing, right? The asset forfeiture. It's like, yeah, the sheriff can either take your stuff or they can take a piece of paper to the bank and take your bank account and give it, give it to the debt collector. They take the piece of paper to your employer and that's what takes your wages, right? That's the, that's what the sheriff does. Um, yeah, and you mentioned the foreclosure stuff. I mean, uh, David Dayan's book Chain of Title is also uh, like really deep on that stuff too. Um, I, when I was in law school, I was in the foreclosure clinic, and it was exactly like that, right? I mean, that's judicial foreclosure. So it happens in court, and the foreclosure mill attorney would just come with her giant freaking stack of things, and the judge would just sit there. And I remember one day he like had a little birthday party for her because he knew when her birthday was, right? Like fraudulent um, this is not in legal there, in california well, there's and, no judicial foreclosure and maybe, so there's not even a court to intervene. Sparky, maybe as you as you respond with legal what like the political and legal responses that the left yeah. should uh focus on maybe you could bring in a little bit of theory because you know we're busting myths about the supreme court being neutral and we're busting myths about did you know that by the way john roberts is like the most beloved political figure in the country did you know that anyway uh and and so we're we're busting myths about the right this is true this is true like the, the democrats yeah, love john roberts stupid de- anyway uh and so let's bust myths about like the neutrality of law and all that and maybe you could talk about legal realism and new legal realism and so forth as well yeah i mean I- yeah, maybe. if you can, I don't, if you want to, if you want to, I just <laughs> we want to think about like theoretical, legal, political resources to combat this stuff, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I and I think there is a tension here, right? Because I think that like there is a tendency, and I mean, honestly, there are a lot of a lot of very earnest, very smart people working on sort of the reformist and in some cases incrementalist approach, and that's it has included me at various times working on state legislation in California to make little pieces of this better, right? You tweak a little thing here, tweak a little thing there. You know, what if a judgment lasts 10 years, but you can't renew it? What if we reduce the interest rate? What if, uh, yeah, you know, you can get the judgment, but you can't, uh, you can't use that to force a sale of someone's home, which is now the case in California that you can't do that, even though you, you could before 2020. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of sort of the larger questions, right? I mean, I think that one option would be to to have a sort of civil Gideon, a public defender service for civil litigation. Um, you know, right now we have we have actually like a, a fairly large legal services system in the United States that offers free legal help to people who are income qualified. Interestingly. You know, uh, Congress over time has put a lot of restrictions on that funding in terms of what those organizations are able to do. But interestingly, like the reason that people tend not to get legal help is not because they don't because they don't qualify or because they don't, you know, because they get turned down. But actually, most people just don't really know that resources are there. 
and they often don't know that the problem they're having is a legal problem. Um, so, you know, for the stuff that I work on, people go talk to housing counselors, they'll go talk to credit counselors, they'll call, you know, they'll call whatever like financial wellness uh, bullshit they happen to see advertised. It's like, no, 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 you're having a legal problem. You're talking to somebody who's telling you that you have a personal responsibility problem, but actually someone <laughs> They're garnishing your wages? Illegal. Just save more with every paycheck. Put away a certain amount of- <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Let me help you budget that. Um, you know, I think that- one of the one of the sort of ideas that has allowed consumer attorneys to exist particularly consumer attorneys outside of government or legal legal services legal aid is is fee shifting um and so you know the general rule in the united states of america is everybody's got to pay for their own attorney's fees right it's not like winner winner gets their attorney's paid but in certain contexts we have decided via statute to make the other side pay for your attorneys. And so our fair debt collection rules are one of those contexts. And so there are a fair number of private attorneys out there who will help people without charging them if and when they've got a good case against a debt collector. Now, that's obviously not everybody. It's not everybody who knows to contact those people. It's not everybody who knows how to contact those people. It's not everybody who realizes they've got a legal problem, who knows they've been sued, who thinks there are any options, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is the case that, you know, even if your actual harm from something is only a few hundred or a thousand bucks, there's a statutory scheme in place to allow you to go hire an attorney and have that attorney collect whatever their actual fees are from the debt collector if you win. And there are a large number, you know, not super large, there are a fair number of people who do this. This has been, you know, extremely under attack. This is part of the whole court reform thing is to cap attorney's fees, get rid of attorney's fees, get rid of punitive damages, all of this, right? Um, but I think that's actually, I mean, it's a structural thing that is very helpful and could be expanded to more areas, right? That's the way a lot of employment law and civil rights law works as well, our fee shifting provisions. And so I think, you know, strengthening and expanding fee shifting, for example, would be something that's kind of I wouldn't call it necessarily incrementalist, but it's also not necessarily revolutionary, right? We don't need to like blow up the courts, <laughs> but basically just make <laughs> make a uh, you know create some incentives, create some market incentives for it for more attorneys to to do this stuff that we think is important. So can you? It's, I just my I think feel like my brain hasn't has stopped working because I, I understand the fee sharing if you're on the plaintiff side, um, but 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 yeah. how how does fee sharing work if it's if you're defending somebody who's poor and, and be it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. Well, except that here, I mean, the, the way that it works in the debt collection context is that as with depending on people not showing up to court, uh, the debt collection industry would not exist if it actually complied with right. the law. Right. And so in, in very many debt collection defense cases, you will find a violation of debt collection law which then can be used Damages. to kind of can, go yeah, on the yeah. offensive. And get, yeah, yeah. But, but no, I mean, I think, you know, if you're talking about just straight defending people from right. lawsuits, no, that doesn't work very well. Um, well, except that you can still do a prevailing party thing, right? And so like if, you know, you can just say- Pay for uh, the, pay for the attorney's this, fees or something, right? Yeah. In this specific kind of case, if, for example, you know, and there are these rules already and there are there is a bunch of case law to determine what it means to be a prevailing party. Like if somebody sues you and then dismisses it, 
are you a prevailing party? Yeah, probably. And so if you go out and get an attorney and they sue you and then now right now the rules often don't allow you to do fee shifting if somebody simply sued you and then dismissed it because your attorney yeah, but did a job. But we could we, change you know, this. We could change that. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that kind of leads into the the last thing I wanted to ask about, which is sort of like more of a general question about the 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 state of the U.S. political system, you know, because like the stuff you're talking about uh, f- fits in with my general conception of the American the American system which is that we have this constitution which was set up by you know basically guys who lived like uh people in the roman empire uh and they they had this like crazy you know romantic attachment to roman institutions and so they set up their government so that it couldn't do anything and then they immediately stumbled ass backwards into the industrial revolution uh, in in which like rapid ep- economic change requires rapid government policy adjustments mm-hmm. to to deal with the fact that like oh well everyone was a farmer and now everyone is not a farmer what do we do about that mm-hmm. um, and the fact that they put so many veto points in the you know, a system of like legislating means that power has flowed to the judiciary over time. Um, And and this, you know, Americans may not know this, but no other uh, developed democracy, probably I think almost no other country in the world has the kind of ridiculously overpowered uh, judicial system that the United States has where like questions of policy are t- are constantly being litigated in the courts as opposed to like you know consistency and like arbitrariness and you know criminality and stuff like that or like is this you know thing constitutional by which can we, by which you mean can we like convince a critical mass of people that like it's not good so that we can get the thing that we couldn't get through the legislature and you know, it, it. I think that that the way the problems you've been talking about with, you know, like liberals, you know, the ACLU, people trying to uh, obtain things through the courts are, are people who have sort of been beaten down by this structural uh, uh, problem with the United States to to be like, well, this is how it is and this is the best we can do. And so we just have to file lawsuits and hope that like the Supreme Court isn't made up of psychopaths. But like 90% of hope we get a good judge. 90% of spin. American history is made of psychopaths, <laughs> racist psychopaths to, to yeah. boot. And, you know, like like should we be moving towards like a more radical conception of just being like, no, listen, you know, if you're the courts you are in a subordinate role. Nobody elected you, you know, especially not the people appointed by Donald Trump, which is 30, 33% of the current court. Sometimes they elect judges, but that's also bad for different reasons. Yeah. 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 So So what are the radical solutions, Sparky? What are the radical solutions, right? Coops? What what do you think? Well, so I, I think first to just, to just plug, an article that I wrote with Adrian Renix a little while ago um, in Current Affairs, uh, comparing the actual operation, the sort of realistic operation of 
U.S. law and U.S. courts to trial by combat and coming to the conclusion that actually it's not that different, <laughs> right? Like what we what we have and maybe what we will inevitably have in this system where we set up an institution for dispute resolution is we have an institution of cost imposition, yeah. right? Like who's got the most the, money? Like the, the use – yeah, exactly. Like the use of the of the court system and of the litigation system, aside from just pure extraction, when you're talking about actually well resourced litigants, is is often almost never about you know what kind of is true or what actually happened. It's who can ex- impose the most costs on the other person. So what happened to Gawker? Basically, not worth it. Gawker died yeah, because exactly. they didn't have Peter enough Thiel. money as to to fight Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel had more money, and so you add up the money. So- you know that's yeah. that's a scale of justice. Uh, that that statue yeah, of the blind woman. I mean, you uh, you uh, add up your money. <laughs> you put the money in one side, and whoever has the most money wins. That's called justice. The scale shifts that way. Yeah, just as just as God intended. A uh, great documentary on the Peter Thiel uh, Hulk Hogan lawsuit. By the way, uh, I can't remember the name right now. But anyway, we'll, find we'll it. put it put it yeah. in the notes. We'll. Yeah. And look, let me do a little bit of self-criticism here too, because when I talk with with some glimmer of hope, which I think I kind of have to have, <laughs> I have no choice but to try to to cling to some glimmer of hope about things like fee shifting or whatever else, like I'm probably doing the same thing as the Supreme Court people are doing. You know, they're looking back at, at you know the um, they're Glory looking years, back at yeah. the uh, Warren Court and they're looking at uh, Thurgood Marshall, and then and then I'm going, no, that's that's dumb. Okay, but let's <laughs> yeah, think yeah, about yeah, legislation right. while I think about like you know Ralph Nader and, and, and Truth the Lending Act. I'm like, oh yeah, we could do that, but no, actually, maybe le- le- you know federal and state legislation is but, also. But are there like non-reformist reform type approaches to this? Because you know we've talked to to the authors of Carceral Con who kind of did this in terms of what's bad about the the criminal justice reform movement and then what's actually like helpful so is is there like a kind of non-reformist reform approach to thinking about these things i don't know i mean i think that um i I think that there are a lot of things that you can do by again not being wrapped up into the institution's various ideas of themselves right like not getting wrapped up into the into the overall importance of the Supreme Court, not getting blinders for federal court, only at ignoring state court, seeing these institutions as tools. Because I think that when you start to see them as tools, there actually are a lot of co- a lot of costs that we can impose. Uh, you know, you, we can we can use these tools in the way that they're they're used by the big corporations against the corporations, right? And I think that um there's actually a lot of potential here with organizing. And I think the Debt Collective, for example, is an organization that is, uh, you know, moving closer and closer to figuring out how to do this. It's obviously very difficult to do, but for the debt stuff in general, I mean, for the debt stuff in particular, right? Like there's, you know, they rely on the stigma, they rely on ignorance, and they rely on people not kind of being out there for each other, of no one knowing who they're suing. And everyone kind of feeling overwhelmed and alone. And so there, there's there's a political education aspect of that that I think can translate into real power fairly quickly um, without having to do reforms or non-reformist reforms or whatever. Yeah, um, it reminds me like like you know, how you fight you know union busters, how, how you educate and unionize uh, workplaces against the kind of nonsense going on there, right? So that, that's the same same type of thing that can be done in a lot of these sites of struggle, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And I think that, you know, what we're what we're talking about and what we're dealing with, like a lot of the issues with it are 
that it is a an extremely hierarchical and top-down and essentially authoritarian institution, right? I mean, not only the, are they not elected, but, you know, for federal courts, it's lifetime appointments. And literally, it's just like somebody who's the boss sitting up in a robe saying what the truth is and what happens to people. And that person is still just a person who's affected by all of the same things that affect all. So, you know, I think that the the way to address that has to be from a sort of people-centered grassroots perspective. And like, I think there are tools out there that we can use now, we can improve, we can sharpen, we can hone those tools, we can maybe add some of them to add some tools with legislation, federal, but especially state legislation. And I think there's a lot to be done at sort of county and municipal levels if people, you know, would start paying attention to this and start applying pressure, you know, like, I don't know, do sheriffs have to go and and serve the writ of execution on people's employers? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they do. What would happen if a sheriff didn't? I don't know. Let's fucking find a right. Well, look, find a place we, we, to try we've, it we've out, got right? socialist judges now. We've got you know lefty DAs. Why not do the same thing? Take 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 over the sheriff's office too with some leftists. I don't know. And I mean, just just the fact that like we don't really have any visibility into what's going on here. You know, uh, there's a lot of public records requests that folks would be doing. But anyway, like there are tools out there, but I think ultimately this is a question of how are how are we going to empower people to understand what these systems are doing and how they're caught up in it. And that's like, that's just not going to be a top-down thing. No. It's not going to be It's like what you're doing, which courts. is looking at the problems going on in your neighborhood and finding people who have the power, knowledge, background to, to challenge it like you're doing, right? Yeah. And, I, and, and the other thing I, I also just want to emphasize is like, again, there are <laughs> so many of the financials, like these financial problems are legal problems. You know, money is actually yep. a creature of law, as folks will understand if they listen to his MMT Real series or engage with any of that stuff, right? But like money is a creature of law on a high level, but personal finance is is a legal question. It's a, a social question, a political question. Social, well, and, and law itself is a yep. social and political right. question. And so, um, you know, and I guess, again, kind of like as a, as a closing thought here, in addition to, yes, there are reforms we can do that will make things better and make things easier and move us in the right direction. Yes, there is political education and empowerment that we need to do. Mutual aid in this regard, I think, can be really powerful and folks are, are thinking about the right ways to do that in ways that are very encouraging. And I hope more people can kind of jump in on that. It's also just the case that, like, there are a bunch more resources out there than people realize right yeah. now. And it would actually help the whole the whole problem, the whole system, just like if each and every person listening would just go look at their credit report. And if they see stuff that's wrong on there, like go to the National Association of Consumer Advocates and look up an attorney and give them a call and see if they left anchor homework, people left anchor homework. Yeah, look up your local legal aid organization like. Legal aids have legal aid organizations have a bunch of people who are excellent on this stuff. Like you, you got a problem with your student debt? I bet your legal aid organization has someone who can help you with it. Um, you know, use that. Like you got to use it, and then and then that will kind of clue in the understanding and build. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I think you know I would just sort of add to that. You know, the possibility, um, remote as it may be, of um, you know defying. Uh, uh, legal tyranny at the highest level. Um, we talked about how the you know the Supreme Court has like very little 
democratic legitimacy. And also now one of its members was very probably involved in a conspiracy to overthrow the government. And so like my thought goes to ex parte Merriman, uh, Lincoln's the, the decision where the, the, um, uh, Roger B. Taney, the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, the author of uh, the worst Supreme Court just uh, Supreme Court opinion Dred in Scott, American yeah. history, Dred Scott versus Stanford, um, said that Lincoln couldn't do uh, uh, he couldn't suspend habeas corpus because uh, because he you know was in sympathy with the Confederacy, and Lincoln said, "Fuck you, I'm not doing what you say." And I think that's a thing that needs to. It's 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 a a possibility, you know, that I think needs to be in the in the back of the mind of any president, you know, because if you're looking at the possibility of judicial review where the where the Supreme Court can just do whatever they want, they can say anything. There's no check on them. There is no checks and balances whatsoever when it comes to the Supreme Court. You can't, uh, you know, aside from amending the Constitution, which is impossible, you can't do it. Um, you know, that's that it's weird. It's weird that that's yeah. impossible now because it, we, used we to did. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's absolutely out of the question now. You can't add anything yeah. to anything. And so, you know, the, 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 like getting back to you sort of drilling down to the like roots of political power to, to like just sort of saying and like doing things and, and, uh, taking what you can. Um, and that, you know, sort of undermining what I would say is this corrosive legitimacy of this court system where people just think, oh, I got this, uh, this, this, this judgment from somebody. Oh, the debt collector says I owe this much. And so I just like, uh, oh, oh, fuck, I'm just going to pay it, whatever I'm going to take. No, whatever we need comes a fighter to- spirit, Ryan, because what you're saying, even yeah. in the in the mind of the president, we need like an FDR who's willing to be like, well, fuck you guys. I'm going to pack the court like who yep. understands that politics is necessary and you have to fight at all levels, whether you're just a random person or the president. Uh, you can't treat things as if they're neutral instruments of justice. Right. Yeah. And I would emphasize that yeah. that doing so is not like illegal, quote unquote. It's like if. If if you have, you know, f- five or six psychopaths on Supreme Court who will just say whatever, you know, like if Democrats do it, that's unconstitutional because Cthulhu Fatagan, like that is not <laughs> law. That is tyranny. That is people just dictating yeah. what should happen. And that's that that the the decision gutting the Civil Rights Act, Shelby County, that's what that was. There was no justification for that in terms of logic or law or anything. The fucking John Roberts didn't even cite the Constitution. It was it was it was just completely a partisan, you know, advantage. And I think that's a that's an extreme, you know, like we we live we 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 wish we lived in a country of laws. And it's bad to be to to violate those laws on purpose, but it's something you need to keep in your back pocket at, at all times. I think, you know, to to be like, oh, yeah. if the people who adjudicate the laws are corrupt or insane, and they say that up is down, you need to you need to be able to tell them fuck off. And yeah, this uh, sophisticated corporate players know yep. this, and they fucking do it all the time, right? They like. They're violating – that's the reason why consent orders last decades is because they just violate them when yeah. it's worth it, right? And like 
And, and I think that's the connection, right? Yeah, the president needs to know that. Congress needs to know that. But like mayors, county county supervisors, sheriffs, and just normal people. And that's I think that's also the connection with, for example, the project of trying to build a debtors union or, uh, you know, uh, unions within jail or trying to kind of build collective power is that it's not only those political actors who have that power. We also can band together and we can defy and or use whatever other tools we have just to make this system extremely difficult to use to accomplish you know this bullshit tyranny absolutely yeah amen thanks sparky appreciate you yeah the, the fight goes on good thanks for all the good work you're doing in california and uh uh on the podcast and your writing um uh, it's important we need we need uh lawyers thinkers and activists to all come together in this fight right yeah, and and just I, I guess a final point, which you can leave in or cut out depending on if you want. I just did a little bit of math to remind myself here a few minutes ago. Um, the largest corporate law firm in the world is Kirkland and Ellis. Um, they have four hundred seventy six equity partners, each of whom got a six point two million dollar profit share. Um, I can't remember if this is twenty nineteen or twenty twenty one. So that's about three billion dollars in profits that were distributed to the Kirkland Ellis partners. Uh, that is six times the annual budget of all 132 uh, legal service corporation funded legal aid offices in the entire country. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah if, so. This would be, you know, if I'm going to do sort of starting from the bottom of the, you know, uh, legal system reform, uh, I would say that uh, the, 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 the defendants should have, whoever you are should have equal resources, you know, like private, you you actually like political campaigns, actually, you should not be able to spend your own money on your own, you know, legal, legal problems. Yeah. The justice system is a public service, right? I I think that's right. Should be. And this is the crazy thing. There are, you know, last two examples, just because they're outrageous. One that people probably know about is that, uh, all theft is criminalized in, in jurisdictions unless it's wage theft. And in many jurisdictions, wage it's theft. not criminal yeah. at all, <laughs> right? And, and that is, it's, it's actually the largest category of theft is wage theft. By a huge and, and that's the one, yeah. by a huge, and that's the one that's not criminalized. And then I don't know if, if you, you both know about this, but, uh, did you know for, if, if, if say the government says, you know, Sparky, you owe $300,000 in back taxes to the government, uh, did you know that, uh, you know, federal tax court, very hard to win against the government. Um, if you have the money to pay in advance, you can remove the jurisdiction to a regular Article Three court where you now have like a 50-50 chance. Oh, yeah. I didn't know so, that. So, so if you are wealthy, you can literally legally buy a better chance at justice uh, with. Oh, this this makes sense. This is like the pay first rule for taxes. Incredible. Um, because then if you pay first, then it becomes a different claim. Yeah, that that is pretty amazing. I mean, I think, you know. The, the the other sort of federal debt thing that I think some people know about now, thanks to student loans, but it's still not that widely known, is debt that you owe to the federal government just comes with enormous crazy powers that aren't available otherwise. Like they can garnish your, your means-tested public benefits in a way that no private creditor can do it. They can do it without taking you to court, without suing you. And of you, course, you, can't, you can't clean it in bankruptcy thanks to good old Joe Biden, right? Well. Right. I mean, that's that's student debt, but that also applies relatively broadly. But like, you know, just for example of how wide this is, right? Like I had a disabled veteran client in Oakland 
who supposedly owed a balance on his Navy Exchange branded credit card. And they were garnishing his VA oh, disability terrible. for without having gotten a judgment for this credit card balance because it was it was Navy Exchange. Incredible. Lovely. Well, th- thanks, Sparky, for, for helping us understand the depths of this problem and giving us a little hope and, and uh, everyone to their own weapons and, and uh, abilities. Let's let's do it. You have your homework, Cliff Anchor. Yeah. All right. Th- thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, my we'll pleasure, see you guys. in the Thank next you. episode.